Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would just respond to some patron emails. But first, let's, let's introduce the podcast. This is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle. That's Psychology in Seattle. I am your host, Dr. Kirk J. Honda. I am a licensed therapist, and I'm also a professor, and I'm also obviously a podcaster. Uh, so this first email, uh, well, this is a bunch of emails, people contacting me, asking me to talk about the Netflix documentary called Voyeur. And, uh, I, um, there's been a lot of talk about it and a lot of interest in it. And people are saying, oh, it's, you know, on the, online, people are saying it's fascinating. So basically there's this Netflix documentary came out in late 2017, I think December. And it, it is a documentary about this guy who owned a hotel through the 60s, 70s, and I think through the 80s. It was a small kind of roadside motel kind of place, and he had constructed this thing in the attic where he could peep on everyone in the hotel. And he talks about how he would masturbate and how he would catalog everything. And he even saw some crimes happen and he didn't do anything. And he did this for a long time. And the, the way that the documentary lays it out is that it's modern times. And he, the, the guy who owned the Peeping Tom, reaches out to a famous author, journalist, um, uh, gay, um, Talese, gay Talese. He's a, if I wasn't familiar with him, but I'm sure some of you are. And the, the motel owner reaches out to this famous journalist and says, I, I'd like you to write my story because I'm going to die soon. Cause he's about 80 years old or something. And he's like, I'm going to die soon. And if I, if I don't tell my story, no one will ever know what happened. And the way the documentary lays it out, it's un- so at first I thought, oh, well, this, this motel owner, he's getting old and he's feeling bad about what he did and he wants to confess. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening. He seems to be reaching out to the journalist, I think because he's narcissistic and he thinks it's cool what he did. I think he thinks that it's sort of special that he did these things. And the, um, the journalist actually, so actually this guy the motel owner had reached out to gay Talese back in 1980 and the, uh, the journalist went to the motel and actually peeped on people himself as well. So, so 1980, this famous journalist who was, they, they have clips of him on uh, TV shows and stuff, talking about his books that he had written. And he goes out to this guy's motel and he peeps on people having sex and this sort of thing. And they show this in the documentary, kind of like recreations and whatnot. And so, so imagine this is yourself. You're a journalist, and you get called to this motel, and this guy shows you that he has this whole system in the attic where he can just walk basically down this hallway and peer down on people's beds whenever he wants to. And, and he does it all night long, every night. This was like an obsession for this motel owner. And incidentally, he, his wife knew all about it, and she's in the documentary too. And you're a journalist, and you find out about this. And the, the way the journalist uh, it talks about 
this motel owner is a sort of respect for him or something. And so this journalist just sits on this and for, yeah, I think he wrote about it, but he didn't report it or he didn't call the police or he didn't, he didn't divulge what it happened. I don't know exactly how that worked out, but, but then fast forward to 2016 and they start writing an article for the New Yorker and they start writing a book about it. These, you know, the motel owner and this, and this, and this journalist, and it's, you know, 36 years later, after uh, he already revealed this information to to Gay Talese, and they um, these two men are come across to me as as narcissistic. I mean, I'm not diagnosing them, but they they seem to not be aware of their impact on other people and of their responsibility to society and to the violation that these people would experience. I mean. If maybe some of you heard because it was sort of a big story in 2016. You know, motel owner voy the the best voyeur of all time, and I find that they're reporting on this. And I I read some articles on it just before I just watched the documentary just now, and then I read some articles, and I kept waiting to see articles where they would say like this this documentary is disgusting. Um, the documentary does not push back on this guy at all. I'm, the whole time I'm thinking. So there must be a twist to the story. There must there, like, why would you make a documentary about the? Why would you focus on this story so so much? When there there must be a twist, and they sort of hint at a twi- twist later, but then they quickly correct back to the main story, which is it's just the documentary is basically, in my view, a story about a man who sexually violated thousands of people over decades and and, and incurred no consequence for it. And you have a journalist who is reporting on it as if this guy is a hero. He talks to the motel owner and he's trying to coach him like, you're, you're a great man. You're a pioneer. You're like an athlete, you know, a black athlete entering into a white world. You know, you're, you're revealing something that a lot of people do and no one ever reveals. And I guess on that level, okay, that's fine. But to refer this guy as a pioneer that's disgusting. That'd be like to me. This is this is essentially on the same spectrum of a serial rapist who cornered women in parks and raped them and got away with it. And then after the statute, there's a lot of talk about the statute of limitations. By the way, you know, it's like, well, it's statute of limitations, and I can I can now reveal this and not you know get any legal consequence. And so so essentially, a serial rapist in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, rapes a bunch of women in a park, thousands of women, gets away with it, and then decides to publish a book later on and is lauded as a pioneer and a hero and, and as fascinating. It's not fascinating. This is, this is not a fascinating documentary. It's disgusting. The whole time I was thinking, like, I, can, I just summed up the entire docu- documentary for you. It's about a creep who watches people have sex. And I, I suppose it appeals to people's sort of id desire to spy on people we, we all have some kind of wish for the ability to be invisible and to just meander around society and watch people do whatever we want to watch I, I don't know uh, if you have that fantasy but i know many people do and i suppose maybe it taps into that sort of thing it, it involves sex which of course always sells on tv it involves crime which of course sells on tv I, I guess, but in, ter- 
and for sure, I get into stuff like that for sure. There, there was that documentary, um, making a murder and other kinds of things that are questionable as to why we're watching it. And, but, but this one is, is highly questionable as to why anyone would watch this and go like, wow, this is fascinating. And, you know, this guy, you know, was he just, he got away with, he had this whole system. He didn't have a system. He built a very janky, basically what he did was he went in, he went into the, he bought a hotel specifically because it had a high, uh, high roof. You know, the attic had a, was, was tall enough that he could walk, you know, stand up and walk through it. And he constructed a flooring in the attic. And then he, he made vents, fake vents with louvers in at the above the bed of every single hotel room and he would just walk around up there and apparently he somehow made it so it was quiet and he would watch people have sex and he'd masturbate it's not fascinating it, it's it's a criminal sexual criminal who did what lots of people do there's a lot of people that do this sort of thing i guess the fact that he that he did it for so long is so interesting and quote unquote got away with it but again if, if we've heard many stories about serial rapists or, or serial killers who get away with what they're doing, I, I don't understand why this is so interesting. Uh, and two, why the, the documentary producers didn't push back on that. They seem to, the, the story of the documentary seemed to be about publishing the, the story. How, how, how are we going to write about it? Are we going to be able to get this story out to the public? You know, we got to get this story out to the public. And I'm like, why? Who needs this story? This is a terrible. I I guess the takeaway is when you go to an Airbnb now, you might want to like make sure that there's no peeping Toms. I suppose that's one thing. Uh, That's one thing I learned from it, honestly. (laughs) Um, I'm going to stay in an Airbnb next week and I'm like, uh, I bet, how do you check for? peeping toms i mean i don't think anyone wants to look at me but you know i i don't want i don't know it's just (laughs) that's the takeaway for me but but again i i just i i don't understand the style of i maybe the documentary and documentarians were thinking well let's let's make it ambiguous let's not try to make a moralistic point and leave it up to the viewer okay i guess so but then when i actually read the reaction from magazines online and stuff they seem to be going in that direction too and to me again the whole time i thought why isn't this guy being prosecuted like at the at toward the end when the story actually comes out he gets a death threat he gets one death threat over the over the phone and i think well good you should be getting death threats now i'm not saying we should be vigilantes and i'm not saying that people should prank call people and say they're going to kill him i'm not saying that but some con- the only consequence that was given to us in this document this document this documentary was this one sort of lame death threat over the phone and that was it <clears throat> there was a lot of shots of them like peering out through the blinds being paranoid that someone was going to come get them and nothing ever happened and th- this guy was disgusting and at, at the end of the uh, as you know the story breaks and the news people start talking about it and the whole time he's just he, he's sort of surprised that people are upset. He's like, I don't understand, you know. He's like, I'm really angry that that people are upset, and I'm really angry that I, this is painting me in a bad light. And his wife says, you know, at one point the guy says, I, the motel owner, he's like, it, they're just making me seem like a creep, and 
the wife who comes across as very subservient throughout the documentary at the, at the very end, she responds to him when he says, you know, he, she, he, he's like, yeah, everyone's just making me out to be a creep. And she says, well, you are a creep. <laughs> and I just thought, uh, that's what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for someone to just step forward and go like, dude, you're a criminal. And cause he calls himself a scientist or, or like a document. He called himself like, he's like, I'm not a creep. I'm a sociologist. I'm studying human behavior. I'm cataloging human because he he kept copious notes on what everyone did, whether it was sexual or not. And no, you're not a sociologist. You're a criminal. You're a cre- you are the definition of creep in the do- in the dictionary. When they talk about a creep, one of the examples is that dude. And you know, for him to think I'm not a creep, I'm a sociologist. That's psychopathic. If you're looking for a psychological angle to this rant that I'm going on, this guy is clearly psychopathic. And the journalist shows signs of psychopathy too, because or narcissism or something. And again, I'm not diagnosing him. I'm just saying like the way it's presented in the documentary, there's traits of that kind of stuff. And I, I just I, the, about 15 minutes into the documentary, I was like, I don't like any of these people. Every one of these people I don't like, and I don't want to watch them anymore. But I kept thinking. There must be a twist. Otherwise, why would you make a documentary about this? And why would everyone be talking about it? So, I don't know. If you want to be grossed out and disgusted as I was, watch Voyeur, the documentary. Let's go on to another email. Okay, this email is from patron Ethan. Ethan writes, I was curious what you think about online reviews for therapists. While looking up some group practices in my area recently, I noticed that Yelp and Google reviews have created pages for them, which feels a little odd to me. Since therapy can be such a personal, intimate experience, it strikes me as each person can have a very different experience, so I'm not comfortable with people being able to review it. On the other hand, it does make sense that people would be able to get some perspective before seeing someone. Curious to hear your thoughts. Well, patron Ethan, yeah, I, I agree. And there are actual ethical codes regarding asking people for reviews. We're, we're not supposed to ask our clients to review us because it puts them in a weird position and it's a dual relationship, as they call it. Also, it could compromise their confidentiality. So, so, that, so there's that. But if, if, if a client wants to review us online or, or you know, feels compelled to do so, then – then that's fine. And it's information. And and as you say, it's important that people get information. I mean, think about how hard it is to find a good therapist and how hard it is to find information on therapists, right? And like for restaurants, for example, there's tons of information from Yelp and whatnot. And it could be argued that when you have information, feedback that's public, businesses will adjust, right? And uh, so if if a if a restaurant gets a bad Yelp review about their bad service, then the manager starts looking into their service training and that sort of thing. So so it does have some effects. Now you know, of course, there's a dark, very dark side to this, where you have trolls and where you have liars and when you have like sort of the the rest the competing restaurants down the street filling your Yelp page with a bunch of bad reviews. And so you know, there's there's a lot of nuances to this, but. When it comes to therapy, yeah, I'm I'm basically for it. I, I I have a Yelp page, for example, and I think that it 
I, honestly, uh, now that I think about it, Ethan, is I wish that more there were more things like this, more honest reviews of therapists available to the public. I mean, why is it that there are hundreds of, of reviews for a restaurant and no reviews for a particular therapist? I mean, because I, anecdotally, I would say the vast majority of therapists do not have Yelp pages. Well, the reason why is because we have so much stigma around therapy that people don't have a culture around admitting that they went to therapy and or reviewing it, right? So so I wish that therapists had uh, you know many reviews that prospective clients could review and sort of see like, oh, okay, I, th- I think I'm get- getting a style here. Now, of course – Whenever anyone reads any review, you have to take it with a grain of salt because the person could just not be of not have the same taste as you or not be looking for the same thing. The other thing is is that therapy isn't necessarily designed to be enjoyable, right? And some therapy and some therapeutic experiences will will be experienced as negative experiences in order for us to for example there's a whole tradition in family therapy where you basically try to create a situation where the so say you enter into a family therapy situation and you find that the family members are fighting with each other a lot and they're not aligned they they're very much against each other and they're triangulating you as the family therapist into their problems well, one strategy, it's, it's, it's not usually the first thing that people go to, but something that sometimes strategic therapists will resort to is the therapist will make themselves out to be the scapegoat, and they'll start barking commands at the family, and then they, and the family by, by bonds together against the therapist. And the therapist, they're all the, the therapist doesn't care about the client liking them. The therapist only cares about the client meeting their goal which is they they don't they want to fight less and so they would walk out of those sessions and say that therapist is terrible but in reality the therapist would say i was a genius <laughs> now that's pretty rare and i, I would say that's you know 0.0001 percent of of the time that that's happening and i would also say that probably the vast majority of times where you have a client saying, yeah, I really like that therapist. I'm going to give that therapist five stars that the therapy is actually helping. You know, there's a whole thing about empathy and alliance and all that kind of thing. And so, so, you know, I remember when I was getting trained in the nineties, I remember there, there was a lot of talk about like, if all your clients really like you, then there's probably something wrong with the way you're, you're, you're doing therapy all all of your clients should not like you. You know, there's a there's a there's a lot of talk about that. But honestly, after 22 years of being a therapist, it's hard for me to think about a client who benefited from therapy with me who didn't like me as well. I mean, it's not as if clients come to me and they leave sessions as if and all I do is just you know, blow sunshine up their butt and just be like, oh my God, you're the best and you're brilliant and every decision you make is awesome. I am not that way. If anything, I'm the opposite. I'm always confronting people gently and, and you know, and saying like, well, you know, that's an interesting decision. You know, let's look at that. And so, so I'm not, I, I'm not doing, I'm not um, blowing sunshine up people's butts, but, but, I would say that the way that I do it with people, at least my hope is, is that clients walk away going like, he cares about me, 
he listens to me and he's and he cares enough to confront me about some things. And so anyway, so to answer your question, Patron Ethan, you know, what do I think about online reviews for therapists? I, I'm basically for it, but I don't think that the current culture around it is robust enough to make it useful to anybody because so many therapists don't have any reviews. And the, th- the few therapists that have reviews, it's it's like one or two. Like, I think I have just one or two reviews on Yelp. And that's that's not very helpful, right? You know, if, if I have two five-star reviews on Yelp, then how do you really know if that's representative of my overall situation, you know? So... The current state, I think, is is pretty bad, and um, and I kind of wish it was it was more robust um, because I think consumers should know what they're getting into before they get into it. Now, I, I don't think that it's super useful to just have all therapists be rated. You know, like ooh, this therapist has a four point five rating, therefore I should go to her because that. I, I'm not saying that, but. But nuanced reviews, like, well, I like this therapist because these are the pros, these are the cons, you know, that kind of talk, I think, could help consumers pick the right therapist. You also go on with your email. Also, I just ordered your supervision book. I'm about to go into internship myself and wanted to get some perspective on supervision. Are there red flags that it, that it may not be a great fit be- between supervisee and supervisor? That's your end of your email. Ethan, thank you so much for buying my supervision book. It's available on Amazon. It's called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. And I, I've, I've received a number of emails from people saying that they bought the book and they're not a supervisor and they still enjoyed reading it, which I did not intend on when I first wrote it. I The, the book is mainly geared towards supervisors. But, but upon getting feedback... I realized that, oh, I guess this could be useful for super, for supervisees as well, for students and trainees and, and psychotherapy, because it talks about what supervision is for and what it can be. And I think that when you see what supervision can be, you can capitalize on supervision. You know, when, when, when therapists are, so in, if you're not in the business, when therapists start out their career, they are under supervision for a number of years and they usually have just a, either one or two supervisors or a small set of supervisors who uh, they're supposed to develop very meaningful relationships with mentor, true mentorships where the, the person, it's almost like an apprenticeship in some ways, or it's almost like a therapeutic relationship in some ways. I mean, I, I just met with my supervisees in a group format the other day and we spent half the we we spent an hour and a half just talking about people's personal lives and about the stress that they've been through and supporting each other through that. And so it's a very meaningful relationship, the supervisor relationship. And when you are in it and you understand the potential of it by reading this book, I suppose, you can capitalize on it. I, I see a lot of people just kind of going through the motions with, with supervision, but but really, supervision, in in my experience, when it goes well, can be the most important experience in terms of my development. And so, so there's that. Um, also, uh, the the book lays out how important supervision is and how 
if you have a choice regarding your supervisor, you should try to choose wisely. But anyway, Patron Ethan writes in and says, are there red flags that as supervisor and supervisor, you might not get along with each other? And the uh, the red flags, and I write about this in the book uh, a lot, but off the top of my head, um, <clears throat> the, when you meet with your potential, so a lot of, so what happens is students will meet with their supervisor, their f- potential future supervisors, essentially the the student is applying for an internship position, right? And when you meet with that potential supervisor, feel them out, you know, get a feel for how it feels to talk with them. I, um, a number of years ago, had the opportunity to choose my own supervisors. And I met with a number of people. And there were some people who on paper looked awesome. I thought, oh, man, she's going to be a great supervisor. And when I met with her, it was awful. She all she did was she she wouldn't let me talk. She just talked and talked. I'm not even joking. Like I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And then uh, eventually, I was just like, well, I guess I guess I'm just here to listen to her. And we weren't even in supervision yet. This was just a getting to know each other meeting. And then at a certain point, she started inventing thoughts that were in my head. She's like, oh, you're probably thinking this. And, oh, you're probably thinking that. And then just barreled forward. And I'm like, I'm not thinking any of those thoughts. And, like, you're a therapist and a supervisor. You're an awful – I don't even – I wouldn't like talking with you at a dinner party, let alone in, in the important conversations of supervision. And so there are a lot – there's a wide variety. <laughs> so so meet with meet with someone, and if – it doesn't feel right to talk to them, then that's a red flag, right? Because the the way you conversate is a major factor in whether or not you're going to get along. Uh, other red flags are ask, try, try to get a hold of past supervisees. So if you're applying for a job or an internship, ask the supervisor. So a lot of, a lot of students, when they go out looking for an internship, they, they, they act like they're begging for an internship. But there's another attitude you can have, which is you are about to go to a company and say, I am going to volunteer my expert professional service to you for free because internships are often free or at the very least they're paid very little. And so you, sh- you have rights to choose. And really labor always has the right to choose. Like whenever you're applying for a job, you should approach it as a two-way street. It's like, I am providing you with labor, which you need, and you're going to give me money, which I need. Um, in the internship experience, it's like I'm going to provide you with labor and and revenue from my service that you're going to make, and you're going to give me hours at your agency so I can graduate from my program. And so you should approach it as a two-way street. And in that way, when you talk to the supervisor. So the supervisor asks you, I want referrals, right? The supervisor says, I want referrals uh, for past, if, you know, I need to talk to your professors. I need to talk to your past employers about you because I, I need to make sure that you're a good person to hire. Well, you should do the same thing back. And this applies really to all labor. Uh, and the, the fact that the manager is the only one who gets to scrutinize the applicant is BS. You, sh- you should be able to go back and look, Look, I want referrals about people who have worked under you before. 
and I want to talk to them. And if someone refuses that, fuck that. If they won't let you do that, say like, nope, I don't want to, I don't want to work for someone who won't let me talk to one of their past supervisees because that's sketchy. For me, and people do this occasionally, or I'll just offer it up. Someone will say, well, it's usually me offering it up because people don't know that they can ask. I'll say, so just so you know, if if you want to talk to one of my past supervisees, I'll give you their email address. And they'll be like, oh, great, you know, and, and, and maybe that past supervisee has some negative things to say about me. I don't know. But, but people, when they want, when they apply to work underneath me, they should know what they're getting into and they should walk into that situation willingly and with, with knowledge. And so when you're applying for internship, one of the best things you can do is say, I want three of your past supervisees to talk to. I I, want to talk with, and people who have been with you for a long time. And then you and then you go to those people and you say, I need your honest opinion, honest opinion. <laughs> and uh, so there's that. A, a thing that I do at my university that I started a number of years ago is I started surveying all of our interns. And so we have at any given time something like, I don't know, 30 to 40 people in our program that are at internship. And <clears throat> every year they there's a new batch. And so... I will survey at the end of their intern experience um, how what they thought about their supervisor, what they thought about the agency, and then I compile all this information and give it to prospective students. So if your program, your program should have something like this. Um, every program should have some way of getting information from interns to uh, uh, earlier students. I even ask this, the graduating students, I say, is it okay if future students reach out to you to ask you about your experience at your internship site and that they check a box yes or no. And then if they say yes, then I pass, then I compile a list of all, of all these people who have uh, interned at different places. And so, so you should have access to that to what a lot of people do is they apply for internship. They have no idea who their supervisor is even going to be. And then they don't find out what their, supervision experience is going to be until it's too late. <laughs> um, so, so there's that. Uh, the other thing is, is that I talk about in the book is that if, if things get hairy and, and things go south, then there are options to get out of it. Sometimes the options aren't so great, but, but if things go bad, you should know as a trainee that you, you deserve the option to, uh, end that supervision relationship and, and seek supervision elsewhere or, or go to a different internship site. Sometimes that's necessary. Now, sometimes the reality is, is that really that will postpone your graduation date like another six to 12 months. And so you don't want to do that. So, so sometimes the wise thing to do is just to hunker down and, and take it. But, but anyway, okay, it's, let's, uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about some more emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast, and you'll get access to hundreds of premium uh, uh, to patron-exclusive episodes, and you won't have to listen to a lot of the commercials. Here's another email here from an anonymous patron. Hi, Dr. Honda. I am wondering if you could do an episode on the psychology of ghosting. I did a quick search and on your website, and I and I don't think you've covered the topic of ghosting before. This is a problem I have in my relationships with people. 
I have a few good friends that I have cut ties with without explanation. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I have essentially done this with my family. I haven't talked to them in almost eight years. Why do people do this? Why do people ghost others? Are there unresolved issues people can work on to prevent them from ghosting others in the future? Once you ghost someone, how do you repair the relationship? Uh, it's an interesting question. I It's hard for me to know exactly why people in general ghost, but I, from the sound of your email, I'm guessing that you're ghosting people because you're afraid of what would happen if you don't, right? There's probably where it's safer to ghost, right? And, and I and I get I have us and I guess I've probably ghosted people in the past if I really thought about it. But but a more contemporary example in my life is when I'm at a party and. In my old age, when I, I, I hit a wall like around, I don't know, 11.30 or something, and I just have to go home and go to bed. There, I, I didn't used to be this way when I was younger, but now I get to this point where just I, I'm like doing fine, everything's fine, you know, having a cocktail, talking to people, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden I just hit a wall and I'm like, I got to go home. And it's it's very quick. And and I, I instantly just change my demeanor. Like I, people will try to interact with me. And I'll be like, uh, the, 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 I just can't, I can't, it's not a gradual tapering off. It's like, boom. And so when I'm in that situation, it's like, I don't want to interact with everyone saying goodbye. I just want to, I just want to go home. <laughs> and so there are times where I'll just, I'll just ghost the party, right? I'll just be like, boom, I'm out of here. <laughs> and, and I figure, well, you know, true friends won't care or, um, they can text me tomorrow and be like, hey, you ghosted us. I'd be like, yeah, sorry, I hit a wall. And and I'm fine with it. So, um, Or I will just try to say goodbye real quick. Like that's another kind of hallmark of mine. I'm like, hey, I'm very efficient with my goodbyes. I think it's probably because I, I, I come from a large family and whenever we would have any birthday or any Father's Day or any, you know, Mother's Day or blah, 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 there would there would be like 30 family members there and when you said goodbye even at the age of say 6 years old 10 years old you would have to hug and maybe kiss everyone in the family before you left the the event right and i learned at a very early age that if if you don't do that quickly, it'll take you an hour and a half to say goodbye because, you know, hey, so great to see you. And then someone tries to start up a conversation and then you're on 15 minutes of conversation. So and I hated that. I thought it, I thought it was very inefficient. I thought, well, if you're just going to stay another hour and a half, just stay another hour and a half and have conversations. But when you say goodbye, it should be goodbye. It should be like I'm leaving the party within the next 30 seconds. I need to say goodbye to everybody. And and, and it, no one else operates this way. It's just me and my weird time saving issues. But but so so I get that. But it sounds like what you are saying, patron, is you're, you're saying, well, I have ghosted a few of my friends without explanation. Uh, I'm, I'm, I would be. So the question I would have for you is, what do you think you were avoiding by by doing that? One and two, I, I would ask you to consider that ghosting might not necessarily be a bad thing. In, in some situations, it might be justified. So, it, so don't, don't condemn yourself just because you've done that before. I, I think there are perfectly legitimate reasons to ghost some relationships, even family members. So 
So I would look into that. But but the question you just want to ask yourself is what would what sort of what was I afraid of by actually having a conversation with these people about uh, was it that you were afraid of what they would say? Like, like say you went to these friends and said, you know what? I think I want to break up with you. <laughs> or you went to your family and you said, you know what? I, I, for these reasons, I don't want to see you for the next eight years. Okay. So there, so there's that uh, question is what, what were you avoiding or what were you avoiding in terms of just interacting with them at all? Were you worried that the next time you saw them, they were going to, what, what were you worried that they were going to do? Now, after a certain point that, and I've seen this before a lot, is say you're, you get depressed or you get avoidant and you're just like, ah, and, and so, you know, your friends are texting you and you're just like, ah, you know, I just, I just don't have the energy to hang out with them now. And then that, that week turns into a month, which turns into six months. And then, and then after six months of, of just kind of laying low, you're like, you know what, I kind of re- want to reach out to my friend again. But then you feel bad because you feel like, oh, well, if I reach out to them, they're going to be angry at me because I've, I've been blowing them off for the past six months. And I see that a lot. And then that basically just turns into this self-imposed isolation. And I find that that is often flawed thinking, that when you reach out to someone, most people don't care or they don't care enough to say anything and they're probably happy to hear from you because most people feel like they don't have enough friends the vast majority of people do not have as well if you ask something like 90 percent of people when you ask them they say i don't have enough friends <laughs> um and and the vast majority a study just came out that demonstrated that m- most people think that other people are having much more fun than they are so and most people want to have more fun. So so even if someone is a little bothered that you have been blowing them off for six months, they're probably happy to just have some friend in their life, you know? Um, so either either they won't say anything, or if they do, it's not that big of a deal. You could just apologize. You could be like, you know what? I invited you to my birthday party six months ago, and you didn't come. And, you can and you know, just say you're sorry. Just say, you know what? I totally dropped the ball on that. I was a little depressed and you're right. I should, I should have at least told you that I wasn't coming and, and, and people will bounce back from that. You know, if they're a good friend, they'll be like, Oh, okay. Thanks for apologizing. It's not a big deal. It's when we make it a big deal in our head, that's when things get um, bad. And that's when we end up in a life of isolation. So those are just uh, some thoughts. You ask, how can you repair the relationship? I I think I just answered that question of just like, just apologize. If if you want to reach, if you're missing somebody and you want to re-engage, just just write them a letter, an email, or call them or something, and just be like, you know what, I I ghosted you. I feel bad, and I I don't I don't know why I did it. Um, I wrote into a podcast, and he didn't really answer my question, <laughs> so I I can't, I can't really tell you why I ghosted you, but I just know that I miss you, and I want to hang out with you, and I'm sorry. Now, maybe they're hurt to the extent that they don't want to re-engage with you. Uh, you just that's just a risk you take, but but I think some many relationships are worth that. My I'll just tell you about my relationship with Umberto. I him and I we've been very close for. Uh, 12 years now or something. And we've had our ups and downs. And there were times when I thought that was the end of our relationship. There were times when I thought, okay, we just had a fight and that's it. We're never going to talk again. That's probably happened three or four times. <laughs> it happened more in the past, but but 
and at those times, I at, at some point once I calmed down, I hit a crossroad, and I, I, I and I could continue going down the road of isolation, or I could revisit my relationship with him and see what sort of next stage we could get to. And what I concluded through my relationship with Umberto is that, and many other relationships, frankly, is that relationships are messy. And, you know, you have the initial phase where everything's fine, whether it's a friend or a romantic partner, there's always that initial phase of like, well, everything's great because you haven't gotten in a fight yet. There ha- there's been no tension. Everything's great. And at some point, particularly the closer you are to someone, there's going to be friction. There's going to be an incident. And that's where the ru- that's where the real relationship rubber meets the road. And if if you really care about a relationship, you will push past that. Every relation and I think part of it is a, with our culture is we as a culture and our movies and TV shows and everything we paint relationships as these perfect things that don't have any horribleness in it. The best relationships on the planet, the best relationships I've ever had have really dark moments where I am extremely upset at that person and hurt and very pessimistic about the future with that person. Now there are some relationships where I'm just like, I've been hurt too much by this person. That's it. I'm out of here. I mean, certainly that's happened. But when, when I look at, so my relationship with Umberto, when I would get to that why in the road, I'd, where I'd be like, well, do I re-engage and apologize or do I just move on and, and just have him be a, a former friend? I would say to myself, well, what, what do I like about him? You know, what do I like about our relationship? And does it, is it good enough to uh, give me reason to push past this to take the good with the bad, you know, um, am I, am I taking the bad with the good or am I taking the good with the bad? <laughs> and the uh, conclusion that I'd always come to with Umberto was that our relationship is so valuable to me that it's worth having occasional problems. And, and, and I think that, uh, a lot of Americans will see situations like, well, good friendships aren't supposed to have problems or good romantic relationships aren't supposed to have problems. And it, and it just isn't true. When you actually do research on relationships, there are usually ongoing. So the longer the relationship and the closer the relationship, the more likely you're going to have an ongoing problem that never gets resolved that you're just like, you know what? We've never seen eye to eye on this. It's always bugged me that they do this and they, they've never indicated that they really understand me on this. And it hurts my feelings whenever we bump into that. Now, of course, there's a spectrum of how much one should deal with, and that's a discernment that everyone has to make for themselves. But, but anyway, so once you, you're asking, once I go someone, how do I repair the relationship? I think it's, it's just being honest and apologizing and telling someone that you miss them and telling them that you need them because we do, we need people. And telling someone that you're not perfect, and that's okay. Uh, if someone's a good person, they'll, they'll respond well to that. Because like I said, most people want more relationships in their life. And when you reach out to them, they'll prob- at the very least, they'll, they'll appreciate it. You know what I mean? So let's read another email. 
All right, this next email is from patron Adam. Adam writes, how does the podcast affect your work? Have you ever been concerned that what you sh- about what you share on your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I am extremely concerned with what I share in the podcast. I, from the very beginning, have always ass- just had a blanket assumption that all of my clients, future, past, present, have seen, every, have watched, have listened to every single episode of, of my podcast. Now, that's not true. Many of my clients, I am guessing, have don't even know about my podcast. But but I know that some do. And I every time I recorded a podcast, I every time I've recorded a podcast, I always I always have many things going through my mind, honestly. There's a lot of different filters going through my mind. But but one of the filters is is this okay for all of my clients to listen to? Is is what I just said and what I'm endorsing and and the emphasis I'm putting on things and the opinions I'm putting out there and the the self-disclosures that I'm making. Is it okay that every single client, past, future, present, hears that? Is that okay? And I I always check in with that. And I'm and I'm and I'm pretty careful about things. I mean, if you listen to this podcast long enough, you'll notice I don't talk about certain things. And some people have even written to me about that. They'll be like, you know, you never talk about X, Y, or Z. And that's for that's on purpose. That's not that's not just random or, or and honestly. I'm a fairly open book sort of person in my personal life. So when I talk to friends and family, like I'm one of those TMI kind of people. And so the fact that there are certain things I just don't even talk about on the podcast, it's a bit of a strain for me. And there are times when I have to cut sections out be like, Oh, that's, you know, that's too much. Um, So there's there's personal information details that I exclude uh, for reasons of, they're you know trying to make sure that my therapeutic relationships are are optimized, but also just in terms of opinions, right? Political opinions, um, this sort of thing. And yeah, I absolutely will. One of the most common things that I will delete from the podcast before posting is when Umberto and I are just kind of riffing on a topic, and somehow we get into politics. If you ever hear us, me and Umberto, talking about politics on the podcast, it is probably two minutes of a conversation that went on for two hours. Uh, Literally, Umberto and I will – and while we're recording, I'm like, oh, this is good stuff. This is good stuff for the podcast, talking, talking, talking. And then I listen back to it, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's that's not good. It it would be good material for – a podcast called Two Idiots Talking About Politics, <laughs> which, you know, there's plenty of there's a plenty of market for that. And and a lot of you listeners actually will ask me questions around this stuff like that. But uh, there are the, the way the political uh, environment is right now is that I could harm relationships very, very easily if I it, not just me. If any therapist talked about their political views in America right now, there is a pretty good chance that they're going to alienate some of their clients. And that would harm the treatment, and that's unethical. And so I absolutely think about that. And so there's stuff like that. Um, there are certain things that like, – like if I wasn't a therapist, I would not be so concerned with um, – uh, certain opinions and certain emphasis that I have. Uh, maybe, I don't know. It's hard for me to know, actually, because the filter has become so much a part of me, honestly. 
So it's hard to know. I, I was just thinking right now as I'm talking, I'm like, well, if I wasn't a therapist and I didn't have to worry about my relationships with my clients or, you know, the ethics involved in that, how different would the podcast be? And actually, I don't think the podcast would be all that different. <laughs> um, I, I think that the there's a synergy with, so the filter that I filter out information for the podcast, I think is synergistic with what I just think is interesting conversation. For example, with two hours of me and Umberto talking about politics, I, I don't actually find that to be very interesting material for people to listen to. One, because we don't know what we're talking about. And two, because it's nothing that you can't get from other places. You know, one of the things that I've always tried to do in this podcast is say like, what can we do that other people really aren't providing? And that's just one of the filters that I have. And so two idiots talking about politics, two Seattleites talking about politics is, is just not very interesting. There's plenty of other podcasts where you can get that kind of silliness or just go to any dinner party and you'll get that kind of stuff. And so, so I think there's a synergy between the filter of what can my clients hear and what I think is actually just good podcast material. Anyway. Yeah. I, so Patreon, I absolutely do think about it. It could be argued that I should tone it down at times. I, I There are times when I will rant about something, and it, in those situations, I'm risking alienating past, future, present clients. And I, I just make a mental calculation about what exactly I'm ranting about, what's the gestalt of my rant, uh, am I am I going to harm someone? And, and sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes I will say something that harms someone. For example, actually, uh, I did an episode recently about, what was I talking about? I can't remember, but I, I was making a point that wouldn't it be nice if the American government spent just part of its military spending on mental health? How, how far we could get with just a small percentage of reduction in military spending and spending on, on mental health. And I can't remember the exact phrasing I used, but it, it triggered a few people who contacted me and felt hurt that I was, I was stigmatizing people in the military or something, which was not my intention. And if that's how it came across, then uh, I apologize for that. What, what I, what I meant. So in that rant that I was ranting about, it's the way some people heard it was that I was against people in the military. And, and because I was ranting, I wasn't perhaps very careful with my words because that was not my intention. I, I have no problem with people in the military. Seattle it has, a, has a lot of military folks in it. And Antioch, actually, my university, has a, there's a lot of, there's a, you know, a small minority of military folks who work there and who go to school there. And so and now, you know, it's like saying I have black friends. I, I'm not saying my point is, is that I, ha I don't have any, I don't have any problem with people in the military and I don't have any problem with people having a career in the military. I don't have any problem with, with, with any of that. Of course, you know, every country needs a military and the military has played a very important role in, our country and in our safety. And, and there's a lot of wonderful things that come from the military. What I was saying in that episode was 
the, when you look at the budget of our government and you look at how much of percentage-wise we're spending on military, and then you look at the percentage we're spending on mental health, you realize that we have very odd priorities, in my opinion. That's just, now again, we're heading into a po- political arena here, and, and I just have to say, I'm, a, I'm an expert psychotherapist, I'm an, I'm an expert in psychology, I am not an expert on politics or, or congressional budgets, you know, so, so just take that with a grain of salt. But in my opinion, it's like we could double the mental health budget in our country and, and literally save lives and, while reducing the military budget by just a minor, you know, point point one percent or something. I don't know the exact numbers, but and and what I and when I say that, I'm not saying we should fire a bunch of military people. I'm saying, how about one less jet, or or you know, one less destroyer, or one less cruise missile, or something. You know, like the uh, the amount of money that goes into some of these stealth bombers could fund probably thousands of cases in mental health, you know? So anyway, uh, that's all I'm saying about that. And I hope that, I don't know, I hope that doesn't offend people. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll find out after this episode. Okay. How about one last email here? This is from patron Michelle. She writes, today I commented to my therapist that I noticed there was an alarm on the door that wasn't there before. My therapist told me that she had received a threatening phone call and that she and her colleagues were taking steps to secure the office. A suggested topic for the podcast would to talk about what similar experience you and your colleagues have had with being threatened and the steps you take to deal with that emotionally and practically. Interesting topic, patron Michelle. Yeah, so... um, I... the, the, The first thing I think of when I read your email, and I I get questions like this occasionally from people, is that it's very rare for a client to threaten a therapist. Now, I'm a man, and I'm tall, (laughs) and so maybe that's a factor, but but I work with a lot of colleagues and a a lot of, you know, women and a lot of, um, well, just a lot of people and a lot of students and blah, blah, blah. And I the the stories that I hear where now I hear a lot of situations where therapists will feel sort of scared, but where a client actually threatens or or makes uh, some kind of gesture that uh, indicates that the client might actually physically harm the therapist is pretty rare, like e- extremely rare. For example, in my twenty two years and. I don't know. I, I I think the last time I did a back of the napkin, it was tens of thousands of sessions, right? With with probably over I don't know, maybe two thousand uh, individual clients or something, maybe more. I have never had that experience. Well, actually, the one time I did was this was a a family and they had a five year old who was very difficult, and at some point it it was it was back when I was a the sort of therapist where I was much more involved in families' lives. I would go to their homes and this kind of thing. And I had to do a, what they call a therapeutic hold on the five-year-old, meaning I had to restrain the five-year-old because the five-year-old was getting violent. And the five-year-old, there's a way you can hold people that makes it so that they can't actually harm anybody, including themselves. 
And actually, if you want to watch the movie Short Term 12 with, um, uh, I can't remember her name, uh, but uh, Short Term 12 is about a group home. It's a really great movie, actually, very moving. And the um, they they show a therapeutic hold in that movie. I did a whole episode about that if you want to listen to it back in the day. But anyway, uh, that little kid, he was violent with me, <laughs> but it was it was five-year-old violence, which is pretty innocuous. Um, so, so it's pretty rare now, it, but it does happen. And I actually had a supervisee who had this happen to her a few months ago. And, and it was, I felt really bad for her cause it, it was extremely, the, the client had, I think pushed her up against a wall or something and, and threatened her or something, something really, really scary. And so it does happen. And, um, so Putting locks on doors, sure, that, you know, if, if that helps. Making sure that you're in a building that requires a security code to get into. Um, making sure that you park your car in well-lit areas. You know, all the classic kinds of things that I guess people do. But the thing is, is that if, that I, I always tell people and, and I get mixed reactions to, but, but this soothes me, is that if a client really wanted to kill me, they could easily do it. All they have to do is get a gun, which, of course, is easy to get in this country, and wait somewhere near my car or somewhere near my office, and they just walk up to me and try to kill me. It, it's, a, it's, fairly easy for, it's fairly easy for anyone to kill anyone. It's fairly, fairly easy. If, if you wanted to murder a famous person, it's pretty easy. The, a politician is hard, you know, particularly uh, presidents, these sort of thing it's harder because they have they have security but but the vast majority of people are accessible to the public and and now what people say is oh my god that's terrifying but actually that comforts me <clears throat> because it happens so rarely which indicates to me that people don't want to do this very often there's the the impulse to actually carry out a murder on someone else is a very rare thing and not not only just for people in general but but for therapists in particular um, I've never heard of a situation where a client decided to kill their therapist you know I'm sure there are examples and incidents but but I've never heard of it and I I consider the fact that I've never heard of a story of even an attempted murder on a therapist uh, the fact that I've just it just hasn't entered my radar indicates to me that it, it's a very rare event. Again, someone will comment on YouTube saying, "Well, actually, there there was a story." Blah blah blah. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Okay, I'm just saying that I I haven't heard of it, um, and so because I don't have the research in front of me and the statistics, I just have to go off my own general anecdotal sense of the landscape after being in in this profession for over 20 years and and just say that it, it's a very rare event. Having said all that, if someone feels threatened or they feel afraid, then they have, as a therapist or really anybody, they have, they have every right to do what they feel they need to do in order to make themselves feel safe. Okay. So if that involves locks or mace or hiring a security guard or whatever, by all means do it, you know, don't, don't wait for something bad to happen. Um, now, having said all that, I will say that I have <laughs> I have had colleagues who I perceived as being 
um, overly scared of situations. I, I had I had a colleague who became extremely afraid of being harmed. Actually, it wasn't by a client; it was by a student. This this was a professor, and the professor was uh, became very afraid of being harmed by uh, by a student, or maybe like all students, or something. And I just did not understand why this professor was afraid of of that. And so, so can there be some some unjustified fears? I think for sure. But but to take measures to make yourself feel safe usually doesn't harm anyone. You know, um, putting a lock on your door doesn't harm anybody, right? It's 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 not an imposition on other people's lives. It's just, it's just a lock on a door. Uh, asking a university to make your parking lot more well lit, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing. These are all good things. So I'm not going to shame someone for having um, unjustified fears. I mean, I, I have my unjustified fears for sure. <laughs> my God. So, so there's that. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. If you want to email me, you can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Again, become a patron. Go to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to all of our exclusive episodes, and you don't, you don't have to listen to um, you don't have to listen to commercials very much. And you also get to know that part of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Uh, I'm thinking about making uh, a major donation to Petfinder. I don't know what constitutes a major donation, but, you know, a sizable donation to PetFinder.com, which is a wonderful organization that saves pets from being euthanized and hooks them up with, with um, uh, you know, deserving families. I'm also thinking about starting a scholarship fund for listeners, for patrons, honestly, and putting up aside some of the money <clears throat> from Patreon to fund scholarships for up-and-coming therapists. Uh, I think that would be a fun idea. That was suggested to me by someone else. Okay, my voice is, is leaving me, so I have to conclude. That does it for that scraggly, froggy episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of, care of yourself and take care of your voice because it's important because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.